Hello, Tumble listeners. As you probably know, Lindsay and I are still on our summer break. This time, though, we've tasked our brilliant interns with creating a time machine so we could go on a vacation. Back to the time of the dinosaurs. Unfortunately, as brilliant as they are, making time machines isn't really their strong suit. So it hasn't really been working that great, and I don't think we can make it back home. Well, that's something to worry about later. On this prehistoric road trip, we hope to liven up your summer, but now with a twist. Trivia! To help us fix our broken time machine, we'll need your help answering questions that follow the episodes. The rules are simple. We'll ask multiple choice questions, give you a few seconds to think, and then reveal the answer. Every question you get right will get us closer to fixing the time machine and to bringing me back home. Oh, wow. I I thought these were tree stumps just a minute ago. A towering Brachiosaurus has been above me this whole time. Luckily, it's a herbivore and only sort of dangerous. While I get a closer look, let's learn about the rise of the dinosaurs. And remember to pay attention to the questions that follow. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, the science behind the rise of the dinosaurs. The age of the dinosaurs lasted 165 million years, but how did it start? The story involves fascinating fossils, intense lava eruptions, climate craziness, and ultimately the dinosaurs' domination of Earth. We're going to find out what happened and how scientists discovered it all. We have two dino-related questions for today's episode. Hi, my name is Elizabeth and I'm nine years old. My question is, what is the oldest dinosaur? I think that scientists might try to find the answer to my question by using fossils. Hi, I'm Andy from Pennsylvania and I'm six years old. My question is, how did the dinosaurs come alive? I think they came alive from the first animals. And I think scientists can find fossil evidence. Thank you. So Elizabeth wants to know the name of the first dinosaur on the planet. And Andy wants to know how dinosaurs came to be. Seems like they're asking really similar questions. I think so, too. Both of them are about how dinosaurs evolved in the first place. And, like, how did the age of dinosaurs come about? How dinosaurs get so awesome and stay awesome for so long? Exactly. And it turns out, the story of how dinosaurs came to be is as exciting and dramatic as the story of how they went extinct. They go from being very small, non-dominant creatures in their ecosystem to being the massive predators that we think of them today. That's scientist Jessica Whiteside. She studies mass extinctions, especially the one that led to the rise of the dinosaurs 200 million years ago. I asked her how she ended up doing what she does. As my mom likes to say, I always like to play in dirt, and still today I continue to play in dirt. Um, But I think it was a fascination for how things came to be. So next time your parents tell you you're getting dirty, you've got a great excuse. This could be your career. Exactly. So Jessica begins our story by taking us back to the time of the oldest dinosaurs, 
the Triassic period, 230 million years ago. So this was a very different world than what we live in today. Instead of the planet being arranged in the continents as we know them, there was actually one giant supercontinent named Pangaea. It basically looked just like Pac-Man, but straddled the equator and stretched from pole to pole. Basically, if you think of today's continents as puzzle pieces, Pangaea is the finished puzzle. It was one big landmass. Must have been like a lot easier to color in maps of the world back then, which was obviously something people were concerned about. <laughs> Just like a chunk of green, like, okay, green is Pangaea, and then blue is the ocean. There's just one. We actually only had one giant ocean called the Panthalassic Ocean. And it was a very, very warm world. The Triassic was a hot time for evolution. So mammals evolve in the Triassic, but very, very small ones. Lizards were there. Crocodile-like creatures were on the planet. A whole slew of very bizarre, funky things that only existed for about 60 million years were there as well. Pterosaurs evolve at the same time. The flying reptiles that are not dinosaurs but did live alongside them. And turtles as well. <laughs> Sounds like an awesome supercontinent animal party. <laughs> like, yo, come to Pangaea. We got a bunch of bizarre, funky things here. Also turtles. <laughs> the turtles are the hardest partiers. <laughs> you know that, right? <laughs> it just takes them a long time. <laughs> like, I'm totally dancing now. Scientists can still see the remains of this evolutionary party in what's called the rock record. Like, check out this awesome rock record. I'll put it on the turntable now. Let's keep this party evolving. <laughs> a geologist's rock record is a little bit different from that. It's how they tell the ages of the layers of sedimentary rock going back hundreds of millions of years. It helps paleontologists match up fossils around the world. And the first two dinosaurs come from the same levels in the rock record. And those are from Argentina. And their names are Eoraptor and Herarosaurus. Eoraptor and Herarosaurus were both springy-looking dinosaurs that walked upright on two legs with shorter, little arms. Eoraptor would have only come up to an adult's knees and Herarosaurus to our hips. So those are the first two dinosaurs then? The first that we know of. Probably were earlier dinosaurs, but we don't actually have them preserved. Meaning we haven't found any fossils of older dinosaurs, but if they do exist, they've yet to be discovered. Well, so what makes scientists say, Aoraptor and Herarosaurus, you guys, you're the first true dinosaurs. Everybody else, fakers. <laughs> well, they both have a special feature in their skeletons that scientists have decided makes a dinosaur a dinosaur. So it has a hole in its hip socket. It has a ball shape on its femur that allows for attachment so that it can stand more upright. And it has pieces of its skeleton that are fused together that allow for that upright stance. So that's it? Just a hole in the hip socket? A couple merged backbone pieces? That makes a dinosaur a dinosaur? <laughs> yep, so it can stand upright. That doesn't mean that all dinosaurs walked on two feet. There's obviously a lot that walked on four. But what it does is helps them get their feet underneath them rather than sprawling out to the side like crocodiles and lizards. 
But what about like fearsome jaws and treacherous claws and like cool spikes on their tails? <laughs> no, it's all in that piece of the anatomy. Scientists trace the origins of the dinosaurs back through fossil skeletons to animals with hip sockets that look like they're just about to start having a hole. Like the evolution of springing a leak in your hip bone just takes hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> Apparently, that was a successful trait. After Eoraptor and Herarosaurus show up, paleontologists can see more and more dinosaurs appearing over the next 35 million years. More dinosaurs! Woo, dinosaur parties gotten started. There's lots of new species evolving and everything is great. But then something really big changes the world forever. We talked about the Triassic being a weird and wonderful world that all the continents were joined together into the supercontinent Pangaea. But at the end Triassic, it starts rifting apart. If you think of baseball seams on a baseball ripping apart. It literally, the continent rips apart and the Atlantic begins to open. What's actually causing that are these massive lava eruptions, which are huge cracks that go deep, deep into the earth. Wow. So like the earth just opens up and spews molten rock. Like, yeah, I guess you wouldn't want to be near that. We can see the remains of these lava eruptions today in the form of lava rocks. And we can tell when they happened, thanks to radioactive elements that set a chemical timestamp on them. Put together, the eruptions covered an area larger than the continental U.S. Whoa, that is enormous. These massive volcanic eruptions threw up all kinds of gases from deep, deep within the Earth's interior into the atmosphere. These gases made the climate go totally haywire. And it's a combination, a double whammy of it being hot for a long, long time following that kills plants and other life forms. Carbon dioxide and methane gas made it hot and sulfur gases made it cold. So it, there could have even been freezing temperatures in the tropical regions, which is not something we would ever associate with today's world. It got really cold, but only for brief snapshots of time throughout the million years that it took for all these lava eruptions to happen. So that's just nuts. Like, a million years of lava eruptions with flashes of cold spells? Like, who wants to live in that? We don't know how many animals actually wanted to live in that. <laughs> there was no polling data. But we can say data. that very few actually did. Scientists estimate that around half of life on Earth went extinct, including the ones at the top of the food chain. So in the late Triassic, the major predators were the crocodile-like creatures. But at this mass extinction event, those scaly creatures could not withstand the cold temperatures. All the crocodile-like creatures except the actual crocodile and the alligator went extinct. And that gave the dinosaurs the opening they didn't know they'd been waiting for. And so when the crocodile line creatures go extinct, well, dinosaurs, they basically end up with their competitors extinct and they grow to tremendous sizes and spread out throughout the world. So after the extinction event, the dinosaurs look around, see literally nothing big enough to challenge them and think, now's our time. <laughs> when dinosaurs took crocodiles place as the top predator on the planet, they could afford to evolve bigger and heavier. And we know that mainly from the footprint record, 
There are thousands and thousands of footprints along the coast of eastern North America. Scientists match these dinosaur footprints to dinosaur skeletons and then use chemical methods to date them or find out how old they are. Not like go out to the movies with the fossils, have them over for some dinner. Fossil, you gotta have some more pasta, maybe? Oh, you don't eat because you're just a rock? Let's just say that back before they became fossils, the dinosaurs were definitely eating. The footprints of dinosaurs change in a way that indicate that their body mass doubled. This didn't happen overnight. Scientists think that the extinction event could have killed off almost all of the herbivores that were not dinosaurs. They were probably eating fish until different animals had enough time to evolve for them to start eating again. In other words, dinosaurs had to wait a while for a good carnivore meal. Wow, so it was like a slow rise of the dinosaurs. But, but what gave them the edge? Why didn't they go extinct along with the rest of life on Earth? We think it's a combination of two things. One is that dinosaurs were able to stand upright. So when there was a combination of massive warming and massive cooling, they could more easily maybe get up sides of mountains or this type of thing and actually escape local perturbations. Meaning individual dinosaurs could escape those dangerous changes in the environment. Oh, so they could move faster than other creatures. The second, and I think the most important, is that every major type of dinosaur we know in its juvenile or if it's in its infant form had feathers. And not necessarily the flat feathers that we talked about for flight, but feathers that were a downy, insulating one to keep them warm. That's something that their scaly competitors did not have. So dinosaur feathers were like the essential outdoor gear of the extinction event. So these cooling times that happened, crocodiles would not have been able to survive without a jacket, so to speak. But the insulation provided by feathers possibly allowed the dinosaurs to win the extinction lottery at this interval because that warmth was punctuated by brief times of super cold temperatures. Man, that's incredible. So dinosaurs just happen to have these two traits, like feathers and a hip socket with a hole in it. That's all they had to put in their bag to survive the trip. It's not what you would think of packing to a million years of lava eruptions, but evolution works in odd ways. It happened to favor the dinosaurs. They were lucky. And so are we, because dinosaurs are awesome, and we get to look at them now. Yes. Well, they're bones. Birds, Marshall, they're birds. All right, so we get to see grackles outside our window and think, hmm, awesome dinosaur. But to go back to Elizabeth and Andy, do we know this whole story about the rise of dinosaurs because of fossils? Like, are they right? They are, but it's not just fossils like bones. The story of the evolution and rise of dinosaurs is one that's not just based on the skeletons. It's based on these other chemical fossils, molecular fossils that tell us about the climate. These molecular fossils are found in the rock record that we mentioned earlier. They're tiny, but they're full of clues about the climate and the environment. Jessica's job is to find out what they mean. It's based on looking at other types of rock that tell us about the conditions at that time that all influence the dinosaurs themselves. So you find yourself borrowing a little bit from chemistry, borrowing a little bit from biology, maybe some from physics or math. 
paleontologists are using all the tools they have to fill in the details and round out the story behind the rise of the dinosaurs. The story Jessica just told us is what we know so far. There's lots more fossil clues out there. So there's lots more waiting to be discovered. So what questions do you have about the rise of the dinosaurs? What more would you like to know about the world that they lived in and the extinction that they made it through? It's quiz time. First question. What was the time of the oldest dinosaurs called? Was it A, the Jurassic, B, the Triassic, or C, the Cretaceous? And the right answer is B, the Triassic. Which brings us to our next question. In the late Triassic period, what type of creatures were the major predators? Were they A, crocodile-like creatures, B, bird-like creatures, or C, fish-like creatures? The correct answer is A, crocodile-like creatures. Which brings us to our final question about that episode. Why didn't dinosaurs go extinct after the extinction event? Was it because A, dinosaurs were able to stand upright? Was it B, dinosaurs had feathers to keep them warm? Or was it C, both of the above? And time's up. The answer is C, both as you might remember from listening to the episode. Well, I hope you did well in our trivia. My time machine needs all the help it can get. After saying hello to the Brachiosaurus, I finally spotted a Stegosaurus, my favorite dinosaur. I've only seen its fossils in a museum before today. So speaking of fossils, let's check out how to be a fossil fixer. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we have a story about a girl who loved dinosaurs. Ooh, I love a good dinosaur story. Well, this story isn't as much about the dinosaurs as it is about the girl and how she followed her dream to grow up and work with dinosaur bones all day long. Like as a paleontologist? Like a fossil fixer, and we're about to find out what that means. Miria Perez dreamed of working with dinosaur bones for as long as she could remember. I've always loved dinosaurs since I was a kid. My mom says, you know, at two years old, that was when I decided to be a paleontologist. Well, it's pretty common for kids to be obsessed with dinosaurs, but I don't think it's very common for people to know they want to be a paleontologist at two. Miria has never known life without an extreme love of dinosaurs. She celebrated with dinosaurs. Almost every birthday cake was a dinosaur theme or paleontology theme. She surrounded herself with dinosaurs. My room was just decorated with dinosaurs. I had dinosaur paintings on the wall. She drew dinosaurs. Um, I really was into art, so in my art classes in elementary school, I'd make you know, whatever project it was, it had to be linked to dinosaurs at some point. She even wore dinosaurs. 
dinosaur dresses that my mom made for me since they didn't exist. There are pictures of me in a dinosaur costume with like a princess outfit on. So like it had to be dinosaur everything. Basically, Miria was living a full blown dinosaur life. I play dinosaurs outside. I would collect rocks and pretend that they were fossils. And I thought I was into dinosaurs when I was a kid, but this is like a whole other level. Miria was 100% committed. And her happy place was naturally the Natural History Museum where she lived in Houston, Texas. I remember going to the museum and I demanded that the dinosaurs and the paleontology hall be the first thing we go see. And then, of course, we had to go see them one more time before leaving the museum. Like, just in case one of the dinosaur skeletons had moved a little bit because it was actually still alive. (laughs) Mostly, Miria just loved being around dinosaurs. And when she was 12, she went to the museum for a very special event. I went to an event at the Houston Museum of Natural Science called Dino Days. And there they featured their curator, their paleontologist, Dr. Robert Bacher. Dr. Bacher was a world-famous paleontologist. He'd starred in documentaries about dinosaurs, which Miria had watched on TV. Of course she watched dinosaur documentaries. Dr. Bacher looked the part of an intrepid paleontologist. He had a long white beard and wore a big cowboy hat. He seemed larger than life. And Miria was going to meet him that day. I mean, the whole morning up to that point where I saw him, stomachs and knots, you know, shaking and very, very nervous. And I, you know, still get that way sometimes meeting idols. I mean, me too. Like, everyone feels that way when they meet their idols. If I ever meet Kermit the Frog. (laughs) Miria had something she wanted to show Dr. Bacher. I brought a binder full of my dinosaur drawings that I had done in my free time. Finally, she saw her moment to approach the great paleontologist. Miria gathered up her courage. I probably was shaking my binder at the time trying to show him and impress him. Well, that's pretty brave. I know, but that wasn't Miria's last time to talk with Dr. Bacher that day. After lunch, there was a big event in the museum's auditorium. Dr. Bacher stood on stage with big sheets of paper in front of him, drawing extinct animals. It was like a game of dinosaur Pictionary. So if you could guess his drawing and tell him a little bit about the animal, you could keep the poster. Miria was chosen to go up and guess on stage. I thought I knew the dinosaur. Once again, she gathered up her courage in front of her idol. I got the answer wrong. Oh, no. So did she get sent back to her seat? No, she got to stay on stage with Dr. Bacher as he talked and finished the drawing. And eventually, she got the right answer. Even though I got it wrong, he showed me what was correct and led me to the right answer and got to keep the poster. And it's hanging up in my office right now. Well, that's awesome. What was the dinosaur? It was Gorgosaurus, a big predator and a cousin of T-Rex. Cool. Before Dino Days was over, Miria had asked Dr. Bacher if she could come work at the museum. I asked, you know, how can I be involved? I really love paleontology. How do I get involved? And, you know, is there a possibility I can volunteer? So what did he say? He said yes. Miria could join the Junior Volunteers Program at the museum. 
And when other kids were spending their weekends playing soccer or doing gymnastics, Miria did paleontology. It was amazing, honestly. You definitely put in the work. I spent almost every weekend I could. My poor mother driving me in through Houston traffic. She was a real trooper. I don't know how she did it for as long as she did. She was a museum mom, a member of the select group of parents whose kids need to be driven to museums every weekend. Miria loved every minute of it. That's when I decided, you know, this is this is home. I love being in a museum and people visiting. They want to hear all about the cool facts and the cool new discoveries that you get to be a part of when you volunteer and learn how to prep fossils and give tours. So Miria found her people. Yes. She also got to go on some amazing field trips outside the museum with Dr. Bakker. My fondest memories are going out to the uh, bread beds of Seymour, Texas, a little tiny town where there are plenty of Permian-aged fossils, 287 million-year-old bones of animals that lived before the dinosaurs. And during those times, Bakker would show me how to prep and how to excavate them. That's so cool. What a great opportunity. It's really special. But, you know, a lot of adults enjoy sharing their work and their knowledge with young people who want to do what they do. There's actually a name for them. They're called mentors. They see and and support you. At least that's what a good mentor does. They see your strengths and they have opportunities that they can show you and and kind of guide you to where you need to be. So a mentor shows you the ropes in a helpful way. There's someone you can talk to about how to achieve your goals. Yes, Dr. Bakker was Miria's first mentor, but through her many years volunteering, she found many more. Like her personal paleontologist super friends. Exactly. And meeting all these people, she got to see all the different jobs she could have within paleontology. Uh, within paleontology, there are a couple different routes you can go. There are different kinds of paleontologists. They study specific kinds of fossils. You have vertebrate paleontologists who study dinosaurs, uh, mammals, uh, reptiles, things with backbones. That's your classic paleontologist. And then you have inverts. Wait, what's that? Someone who turns the dinosaur bones upside down? <laughs> inverts is short for invertebrates. Animals without backbones like ancient squids, for example. Ancient squids are pretty cool. You also have ichnologists who study trace fossils, like footprints. Wait, ichnologists? They study gross stuff? <laughs> no, they study fossils that aren't bones, including my favorite fossils, which might be a little bit icky, coprolites, fossilized poop. Definitely gross stuff. <laughs> and then you also have paleobotanists who study plants. Ooh, flower fossils. That sounds awesome, too. So what kind of paleontology does Miria do? Well, Miria tried a little bit of everything between her time at the museum and studying paleontology in college. I just found I did enjoy learning and um, reading and, and making discoveries, but I really, really loved working with my hands. She decided to become a fossil preparator. It's a... Fossil preparator. <laughs> preparator. So what is that? A fossil preparator is a kind of paleontologist 
and our job is to prepare and clean fossil specimens so that they are ready to be put in our museum's collections for studies for generations down the line and then also on display. And so they're the people who actually get to touch the fossils in a museum, not like the rest of us who get yelled at when we climb over the railing at the T-Rex exhibit at the Field Museum in Chicago. That was not... totally inappropriate, Marshall. <laughs> I don't know anyone who did that. <laughs> Fossil preparators are the fossil fixers of the paleontology world. It's their job to take a fossil that's just been dug out of the ground into an object worthy of display in a museum. There's um, an artistic component to fossil prep as well. You have to really learn the tools and you get a good eye for it. And it just, it's very therapeutic. Bones arrive to Miria's lab in all sorts of conditions. They might be completely covered in rock or just disintegrating into dust. She works on them with a set of tools ranging from mini jackhammers called air scribes to tiny brushes, Q-tips, and glue. It's kind of like coloring in a coloring book. You go through and you know what the bone looks like and you're really good with your tool. And so it just becomes kind of like a rhythm and... You just jam out and you prep, you prep away. So fossil prep is like paleontology for artists who like to jam out with dino bones. I wonder what the best dino jams are. I think we need to get a dino playlist together. <laughs> Miria is now a fossil preparator at the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas. It's her first real job, but she's already been doing paleontology for over 10 years. It's wild to be 24 and have a decade-long experience of fossil prep, which is wild. It's pretty great. I definitely had kind of a jump start doing it so early. So Miria went from doing fossil drawings as a kid to becoming a fossil artist in real life. Exactly. And remember how when she was two, she wanted to be a paleontologist. But her experience showed her that there are many different ways to work in paleontology, and she found the way that was right for her. You know, it definitely enforced that I wanted to do it, but it's very important to figure out what you like. So Miri should write a book called How I Turned My Dino Dreams into Dino Reality. I imagine it would be full of really excellent advice for anyone who has a dream job. But here's the big take-home message. If you can explore and figure out what you like early, then that's awesome. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you have a dream job? Maybe there's a way to get started on it now. Here's two ideas to start exploring. The first one is to look for places in your area where people might do the work that you dream of doing. Then ask if there are volunteer programs or someone to talk to about opportunities to get involved, even from home. But here's the second idea. Google and reach out to people who have the job you dream about. Lots of people have websites with information about their work and how to contact them. Send them an email asking for advice. Maybe with the help of a grown-up. And speaking about scientists, they're usually happy to hear from kids. And if you want to be a paleontologist, Miria is happy to answer your emails personally. We'll have her email address on our website. It's quiz time. Question number one. What dinosaur did Dr. Bacher draw for Miria? Was it A, a Gorgosaurus, 
B, a stegosaurus, or C, an awesome and scary velociraptor? The right answer is A, a gorgosaurus. That brings us to our next question. How did Miria spend her weekends as a kid? Was she A, playing dolls, B, practicing paleontology, or C, skydiving? The answer is B, practicing paleontology. Question three, what type of paleontologist is Miria? Is she a A, paleobotanist, B, a fossil preparator, or C, an ichnologist? The correct answer is B, a fossil preparator. Well, I hope that trivia wasn't too difficult. I really appreciate all your hard work. As for myself, I'm having fun spotting my favorite dinosaurs. Now that it's dark, it's starting to get a little chilly here. It's feeling like the Antarctic. You know what? I think they have dinosaurs there, too. Up next, the call of the Antarctic dinosaur. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we're talking to a scientist who is changing the way we think about dinosaurs and going all the way to Antarctica to do it. Spoiler alert, dinosaurs once roamed Antarctica, and they sounded much different than we think. We asked our listeners what they think dinosaurs might have sounded like and how scientists would find out. This is the T Rex or something. Scientists may study how um the dinosaurs throat and mouth moved like so we know what the dinosaur sounded like and it will be super cool how about by looking at the bones and seeing what kind of animal they're related to now you can like take the fossils kind of like look at where the vocal cords were and kind of get like the shape i think the dinosaurs would say wow you look delicious and i think the dinosaurs could say hey good looking That was Carolyn and Rosemary, Caleb and Hazel, Elliot and Ella. Marshall, what do you think dinosaurs might have said to each other? I think dinosaurs might have said things like, Excuse me, Jeeves, there's too much sugar in this tea. We can't know exactly what ancient dinosaurs would or would not have said to each other, but we might know what they sounded like, thanks to this scientist. I think I was heavily influenced by Indiana Jones, and this was a series of movies that came out. They involved this sort of intrepid explorer who went around discovering new things all over the world. That's kind of what I wanted to be, so I used to dig things up in my backyard. That's Julia Clark, a paleontologist at the University of Texas, Austin. 
I have to say that I think Julia is one of the coolest scientists I've ever met. She's been involved in some of the most exciting discoveries about dinosaurs and birds over the past decade. Do you feel like you are an explorer now? I do feel like I'm an explorer now. Um, you know, do I get to live the life of an explorer every day? I only get to be out in the field or, or out discovering things a part of every year. But the discovery process extends to my office. I got to interview Julia in her office. Looking around, her desk is filled with papers, her shelves are full of books, and her walls are covered in art. So I like beautiful things, and I think science is beautiful. And so I have some historic illustrations of birds and some dinosaurs, and then whatever I'm working on, which sort of accumulates. Hmm. I mean, there's not much discovery going on in our office, except for maybe some, like, dust bunnies. <laughs> or crumbs from yesterday's lunch. <laughs> Perhaps. But Julia is a scientist, which means discovery is practically in her job description. So the story starts pretty long time ago. Julia was just getting her start as a paleontologist, and she was interested in the evolution of birds. I started out working on various bird skeletons that were collected by teams from Argentina who went to Antarctica, specifically a little island called Vega Island, discovered that they represented a new species. So she discovered a new species from Antarctica? Was this like a polar dinosaur with white fur all over its body? <laughs> no. Back during the late Cretaceous period, 100 to 65 million years ago, Antarctica was not a cold place. The land masses that are underneath the ice were covered in the highlands by lots of trees. There were flowers that lived along the coastlines. This avian or bird-like dinosaur looked kind of like a large duck and lived in the Antarctic forest. They were a very important part of bird evolution because they showed that at least several living bird lineages were around during the age of dinosaurs. For example, ducks and geese and relatives of chickens and relatives of weird things like ostriches. Ostriches are always the strangest relative that the bird family gathering, like everybody's like, ostrich, you're into weird stuff. <laughs> so Julia made this big discovery and thought she was done with the dinosaur duck ancestor. But years later, she came back to it because the original team of scientists had found a second, even better preserved skeleton. I had started thinking about the origin of birdsong. So whether there'd be any fossilizable remains that could tell us about how birdsong evolved. Well, it happened that I was looking at CT scans of the fossil. A CT scan is like an x-ray. It gave her a view inside the fossil. I saw a structure in there. A structure? Like a modernist dwelling? It was a tiny fossil inside the fossil. It looked like a tube with two smaller tubes branching off at the bottom. I really don't think I would have looked twice at the structure, except that I had already been talking with some physiologists, bird people who study birdsong, about what we might look for in the fossil record. She'd been asking herself the question, if we could find the remains of an ancient bird windpipe... 
what would it look like? I was sitting here right where we are today, and I was looking at the CT scans on my computer, and I said, I think it's a syrinx. A syrinx is the organ that birds use to make sound or song. In humans, it's called the larynx, and it's in our throat. Oh, wow. So you just happened to be looking at this fossil and thinking about finding a syrinx, and then she saw it? Yeah. So... What did that make her think that the dinosaurs sound like? Like, did they roar? Did they go like, roar? No. <laughs> Was it more like, me? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Closer. <laughs> it's very likely that no dinosaur ever roared. No way. I saw Jurassic Park. They roared in there. <laughs> Well, we know that roaring is not true because think of the animals that you know roar. You know, like a lion. We imagine that because dinosaurs are big and scary, they sound like big and scary predators today, which are mostly mammals related to us. But we know dinosaurs are not closely related to any of those animals. They are most closely related to birds and crocodilians, neither of which produce sounds that sound like a roar. It's pretty unlikely that a dinosaur mealtime went down the way it's depicted in Jurassic Park. I don't know why they'd be so angry, too. They always seem angry right before they're about to eat, and they should be, like, really happy. <laughs> they're like, wait, wait, hold on, prey animal. Just hold still. I'm going to take a picture, put it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag foodie, hashtag dinner time. <laughs> So if dinosaurs didn't roar, what did they sound like? Were they more like birds? Julia's discovery of the syrinx suggests that they didn't sing like today's birds. She thinks they might have sounded more like a crocodile or even an ostrich. In case you're wondering what that sounds like, here's a crocodile. <laughs> here's an ostrich. I wonder if T-Rex would be scary in Jurassic Park with weird ostrich claws. <laughs> That's really not scary. <laughs> I know, but you have to admit that would be amazing. I would watch a version of Jurassic Park like that. They might want to hold back on editing because Julia might have some other suggestions. The discoveries she's made about dinosaur sounds are part of a much bigger question about the dinosaur world. Ooh. I want to know what that question is. What is it? We know we have an extinction event where all of these other dinosaurs go extinct, but birds survive, and we don't know why. Oh, yeah, I guess nobody knows why ducks and ostriches even exist. Like, they're weird. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mention it, that's an incredibly good question. I wanted to find more of this early, of these fossils that would tell us about what birds were doing right around the time that all of the other dinosaurs went extinct. And so to do that, the best fossil birds in the world from this time period were coming from this island in Antarctica. And that's why I really wanted to go back to see if we could find more. This is Julia's Indiana Jones moment. She gets to be an explorer out in the field. Go get her pith helmet. I had worked a lot in extreme deserts where it might reach 120 degrees. Antarctica is essentially, parts of it are, are similar to a desert, but it's very cold. So before she takes off on an adventure, she has to get practical. I didn't know what to expect. I think the first trip, I spent a lot of time figuring out if I had the right socks. 
she lands on Vega Island with the right socks. And then she spends over two weeks camping out, which looks a lot like camping out anywhere else. But colder, and I'm assuming you can't go to the bathroom at the campsite, because there is no campsite. You have to go down to the beach, and sometimes the beach is occupied by some very large seals that do not want to let you use the area that has been designated for um, such activities. Okay, so you have to fight it out with seals in order to go to the bathroom. Correct. Man, I thought finding a spot in the state park was rough. (laughs) Just remember, you could be in below freezing temperatures fighting off a herd of seals. (laughs) So what about the fossil hunting explorer part? Like, that's the glamorous part, right? Looking for fossils really involves walking around looking at the ground. And I look for really tiny things because I want to find tiny dinosaurs and birds. So no digging? Nope. The most important piece of equipment is an eye that's trained to separate fossils from regular rocks. So this crawling around on the ground, walking around, crawling over and over again for hours at a time, and you're just exposed to the elements for quite, you know, maybe eight hours out of the day, and then come back down to camp, cook some food, hang out, everybody's cold, Um, most people go to sleep. Okay, but they're going to find the Temple of Doom later, Right. For Julia, a good bird fossil is better than any hidden temple. And she found a lot of bird fossils. We definitely had fossils that we found every day. These fossils, having laid on an Antarctic island for tens of millions of years, get shipped all the way back to Julia's lab. And then Julia herself gets on a plane, defrosts her fingers, and gets to work. Actually, I think my student's working on them right now. There he is. All right. Hey, we're going to look at some Antarctic fossils, Chris. Awesome. Chris was part of Julia's team in Antarctica. We just have a couple of stuff, things so far shipped here. Um, Julia shows me a big drawer full of fossils. Some small pieces, possibly fragments of different vertebrates, teeth of of marine reptiles and such from Vega. Chris is working to identify some of these fossils. He's holding one in his hand and writing in a notebook at the same time. What are you working on right now, the Tarsometatarsus? Yeah, I'm going through everything we've got to try to figure out what this guy is. And it's looking either um, as a picture form or maybe a crane. Looks very craney. Craney? Is that a technical term? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it it communicates something, though. (laughs) (laughs) It shows that discovery doesn't just happen out in the field. The work really starts when you're back in the lab. So we're going to be studying those over the next year and kind of seeing what they tell us. We are planning to go back to Antarctica. We don't have all of the answers we would want. I mean, it's the nature of science to always be looking for more answers. There's so much we don't yet know, and there's so much yet to discover. And the history of dinosaurs or their biology is not yet completely known. And that's not a problem of science. That's the process of science. In the last 20 years, you know, we've learned 
that many dinosaurs were feathered. We've learned something about the color of dinosaurs. We've learned more about what dinosaurs might have sounded like. We've learned about new places where we had never found dinosaurs before, new species of dinosaurs. It's not over. We're still in an age of discovery, and we need that commitment to find out the next part of the story. So it sounds like there's still a lot to learn about dinosaurs. I know. And it could be scientists who are kids now making the discoveries, just like Julia became her own kind of Indiana Jones. If you've been listening along and are inspired to share a drawing of a feathery, squawking dinosaur that looks and sounds like an ostrich, which ostriches really just are giant dinosaurs, we'd love to see it. Please send us all of your dinosaur drawings. Make sure they have feathers. (laughs) (laughs) Send them to us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. It's quiz time. Question one. What kind of fossils did Julia use to figure out what dinosaurs sounded like? Did she use A, alligator fossils, B, lizard fossils, or C, bird fossils? The right answer is C, bird fossils. Question two. In this episode, we learned that dinosaurs probably didn't roar. What do they actually sound like? Probably. Did they sound A, like today's birds, B, like a crocodile or an ostrich, or C, like a dog's growl? The answer is B, like a crocodile or an ostrich. Question three. What question did Julia want to investigate on her return trip to Antarctica? Was it A, What were birds doing when the other dinosaurs went extinct? B. What did the dinosaurs sound like? Or C. What kind of lizards still live in the Antarctic? The correct answer is A. What were birds doing when the other dinosaurs went extinct? Well, I hope you had fun learning about the Antarctic dinosaur and hopefully doing well in the trivia I've warmed up by a bonfire to help me get through the night. Wait, does this make me the first human in history to make fire? Either way, things around here are about to get a whole lot hotter. I think I can see an asteroid in the sky. If my time machine isn't functional by the end of this next episode, I'm toast! Introducing, oh no, the dinosaur asteroid! Look out! Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. (laughs) Finally. You know, we're on like episode 110 of this kid's science show. When are we going to talk about what killed the dinosaurs? The time has come. We're going to rewind the tape of the fateful impact back to the moment that the asteroid set out on a collision course with our planet. Over the years, we've gotten many questions from listeners about what killed the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs dominated the Earth for 160 million years. Then, all of a sudden, they disappeared. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, it was one of the biggest mysteries in all of science. Like, people talked about it all the time. 
Yeah. Well, since dinosaur fossils were discovered, scientists have been asking why dinosaurs are no longer with us. They came up with all sorts of ideas for decades. But one theory rose above the others, that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs, leaving a massive impact crater called Chicxulub off the coast of Mexico. And that's what our listener Lucian asked us about. Where did the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs come from? I think scientists can figure it out by looking at the crater. So where did the asteroid come from? Like, I assume outer space, like certainly not on our planet. (laughs) Someone didn't throw it up and then have it land back down. (laughs) I think Lucian knows that it came from space. But that's what makes this question so interesting. Can scientists know where the asteroid came from? Let's ask our listeners. Where do you think the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs came from, and how would scientists find out? Think about it. We'll be right back with the story, and then the science behind the asteroid's impact. Okay, we're going to start off our answer a little bit differently than usual, with a movie. What? We're, we're making a... Wait, I, I definitely don't have my hair and makeup ready. Um, we need <laughs> to pause. It's a podcast movie. No makeup necessary. We're going to watch the journey of the asteroid from start to its dramatic finish when 75% of life on the planet goes extinct. Whoa, whoa, spoiler alert. Come on. We haven't <laughs> even started the movie yet. Let's begin a long, long time ago in an asteroid belt far, far away. There are two gigantic asteroids moving through the outer parts of the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. They're leftover debris from building our solar system. And one day, they collide. The force of their collision breaks both asteroids into thousands of pieces. And these pieces find their way out of the asteroid belt, some of them careening towards Earth. But Earth is very far away from the asteroid belts. Their journey takes tens of millions to maybe a hundred million years. When they finally reach Earth's orbit, some of them pass by or hit the moon. But one, measuring about six to seven miles wide, collides directly with Earth at 27,000 miles or 43,000 kilometers per hour. The asteroid hits the Gulf of Mexico at the most destructive possible angle, punching a giant hole in the Earth 90 miles wide. After that moment of impact, everything happens at once, changing Earth forever. The rocks in the hole move like liquid in a bowl, sloshing back and forth before coming to rest as a ring of mountains. The impact sets off a tsunami, starts wildfires, and vaporizes rock into gases that cloud the sky. These gas clouds transform the atmosphere, blocking out light from the sun. The temperature drops and Earth gets cold. Without light, all the plants die out. The food chain collapses. Ultimately, 75% of life goes extinct. A few things survive, including the avian dinosaurs that we now know as birds, crocodiles, frogs, and more. 
and importantly, small, rodent-like mammals survive, our ancient ancestors who would evolve to replace the dinosaurs as the dominant creatures on Earth. Oh, is that all a true story, or did you just make it up? <laughs> I didn't make it up. There is science behind every single part. For decades, scientists have been tracking down evidence from Earth and space to reconstruct that fateful moment from 66 million years ago. Sean Gulick is one of them. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by the dinosaurs. I totally wanted to be a paleontologist back then. So... I feel like that's like the story for 99% of three-year-olds. Is he the 1%? <laughs> Did he grow up to become one? No, he's not a paleontologist. He studies the rocks themselves, which actually tell us more about dinosaurs' fate than fossils. The fossils were just the very first clue that something had gone very, very wrong. So we knew that there was an extinction event because you knew that there was all these fossils that disappeared at the same time around the world. So wait, someone came and stole all the dinosaur fossils at the same time? That is a huge heist. <laughs> no, he means they disappeared in the rock record, which is essentially the history of Earth. You can't find fossils from the dinosaur's time past a certain age of rock. It's like someone drew a line in time that the dinosaurs could not cross. And a few geologists found this line in the rocks themselves. And they discovered in two different places, and in Spain and in Italy specifically, that there was this boundary layer, this centimeter of material, right at the moment that we have the extinction event. That boundary layer between the dinosaurs in the next wave of evolution contained a strange metal called iridium. Which is not present at very high levels on Earth's surface normally, but is in the asteroids. Wow, so like they found a space alien. <laughs> a space alien metal. This layer of iridium was actually all over the planet, like a fine layer of dust. So they made the argument it had to have come from outer space, basically. Okay, so it's basically they found a layer of space dust in the rocks that were created around the time that the dinosaurs went extinct. And that's the evidence of the asteroid. Exactly right. But there were a lot of different theories about what killed the dinosaurs. And the asteroid theory needed more evidence to prove itself. So then the next big question is, where was the crater? Yeah, that does seem like an obvious next question. Like, if there's a giant space rock that's depositing dust all over the planet, it would definitely leave a mark. <laughs> Scientists searched the entire planet using different types of images to reveal what was beneath today's rocks. Finally, they found a giant sunken circle off the coast of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. They went there to try and answer these questions. What does this crater look like? What is the processes that made the crater? And why would an impact in the Yucatan Peninsula cause the extinction of the dinosaurs and 75% of life on Earth? In other words, did this impact crater have what it takes to cause a mass extinction? To find out, scientists had to put together the story of the asteroid and measure the effect it would have had on Earth. And the effects are now really pretty clear. With so much evidence and details uncovered, scientists determined that yes, the effect of an asteroid hitting Earth in that space was enough to kill the dinosaurs. 
Like, it really was that bad. It was awful. (laughs) But scientific theories are always being challenged. And you want to get your evidence as solid as possible. That's why Sean went to the crater to drill for the final pieces of evidence to prove the theory beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he had a really cool boat to do it with. So we brought out this flat bottom boat that has sort of legs and it put the legs onto the seafloor and lifted itself up out of the water. So we were about 50 feet up in the air. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm having a really hard time picturing this. He's on a boat with legs that's lifting him up 50 feet in the air? Yeah, I kind of imagine it like a spider boat. (laughs) (laughs) But it's essentially like a portable drilling platform. And then we had a mining drilling rig, the kind that you might use on land, on the bow of, of, of this lift boat, which is called the lift boat Myrtle. Oh, Myrtle, that's an adorable name. <laughs> Myrtle was seriously equipped to drill into ocean rock and pull up long cylinders of sediments called cores. Oh, we talked about cores in our episode, The Expedition of the Science Ship, and I even follow them on Instagram now. (laughs) And I see all their cores. (laughs) There's lots of cores. This is the same thing, but different boat. And so Sean and Myrtle the lift boat are drilling into the ring of mountains that was instantly formed by the asteroid impact. It was unbelievably exciting as new cores were coming up from parts of the crater that nobody had ever seen before. Every time a core comes up on deck, it's an opportunity for a big discovery. You cannot always tell what you have from the cores immediately, but sometimes you can. One of those times, Sean knew that they had found the tsunami, that giant wave triggered by the impact, because the core had a layer of sand. What would possibly be big enough to put sand up on top of this ring of mountains? We realized it had to be a tsunami of incredible height that, you know, we could look at it and go, wow, I mean, I don't know what else could do that except a tsunami. That's unbelievable. So you can actually see in the rock something that happened in like one second, like millions of years ago. Yep, within the first day. Whoa. But what Sean couldn't see in the cores was the most important piece of evidence. We couldn't tell you that there was an iridium layer in the crater until a whole lot of laboratory work happened. So the iridium, which is the metal that comes from the space rocks, the space metal. (laughs) Yes, which should be a genre of music, I think. (laughs) I think it is. (laughs) (laughs) People had found iridium all over the world, but it hadn't yet been found in the crater itself. And that's what Sean and his team found. If you really wanted a proof positive that it's exactly at the right time, you couldn't have asked for a better one than finding that the global layer that defines 66 million years ago, this iridium layer, in the crater itself to say, in fact, there's no question that these are of the same time. Wow, so this like final piece of evidence just completed the puzzle, and, and that's it. Well, it's like when you finished a thousand-piece puzzle and you're, like, putting the last one piece in. So satisfying. But we've still got further to go in the story, back to before the asteroid hit Earth. Yeah, how do you study that? Like, there's all these clues left in the rocks from when the asteroid hit Earth, but do they leave, like, any, um, I don't know, space footprints (laughs) as they went through space? Like, something where you could tell where it came from? (laughs) Something you can put your magnifying glass to. (laughs) This part of the story is much less certain than the parts that happened on Earth. 
And the evidence comes from a group of astronomers who study how asteroids move through the asteroid belts. Sean describes their research like this. Hit the balls on a, a billiards table or a pool table and then have them go all over the place and then try to track where they all come from. Okay, so it's like trying to reconstruct how that little triangle of balls at the beginning of your pool game broke apart, but in space, in millions of years ago, and with probably a much, much bigger pool cue. Sounds hard. <laughs> it is, but there's a few things we have to go on. We know what our asteroid is made out of, and not all asteroids are made up of the same materials. So astronomers can track it back to a group or population of asteroids that are still moving around in the asteroid belts. There's an understanding of the populations that are out there and therefore what it would take to have a really large one end up on an Earth-crossing orbit when it did. Still, scientists are far from consensus on where that dino-killing asteroid came from. The version I laid out is up for debate in terms of timing, but scientists are pretty sure it had to come from two big asteroids going boom at some point. You know, to have a collision to kick something out that ends up in the inner solar system is not that unusual. But then have one that kicked out something big enough, you know, a 12-kilometer or 7-mile-wide asteroid that just happened to hit Earth, you know, the odds of that are really, really small. Okay, so, so the dinosaurs definitely had, like, the worst day ever on Earth. The worst for the dinosaurs, but we're here. And arguably, our planet fundamentally changed, evolution changed, and humans eventually grew out of that new phase of evolution. And that's a really key aspect. In other words, we might owe our own existence to that asteroid. It took out our competition and gave humans the space to evolve. Who knows what the planet would have looked like had Chicxulub never have happened? And would we be here to look at it? Wow. Last minute perspective shift there. I had to blow your mind one last time. So what do you think the planet would look like if the asteroid didn't hit Earth 66 million years ago? Talk about it with your family and friends, or try writing a story about it. What kinds of new dinosaurs might have evolved? And do you think people would be around to see them? Share your speculative fiction story with us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to read it. It's quiz time. First question. Where did the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs land? Was it A, North Africa, B, Antarctica, or C, the Gulf of Mexico? The answer is C, the Gulf of Mexico. Question two. What was the name of the space metal that originates from the asteroid? Is it A, aluminum, B, iridium, or C, cobalt? The right answer is B, iridium. Question three. Why do we humans owe our existence to the asteroid? Was it A, without dinosaurs, our mammal ancestors had the space to evolve? Or was it B, humans need iridium? Was it C, the asteroid made Earth warm enough for us?
The answer is A. Without dinosaurs, humans, and other animals like us had the space to evolve. Phew. Well, looks like I got out of there just in time. Thank you for answering all those trivia questions. You and my time machine saved me. Although, I think I'll miss my large, kind of reptilian, dinosaurus-like friends. <laughs> I'll catch up with them in a museum someday. Well, thank you so much for spending your summer with Tumble. We're excited to return in the fall, so stay tuned for Season 8, coming in just a few more weeks. However, if you want more episodes this summer, you can pledge just $1 a month on Patreon for our collection of bonus episodes. Thanks to all the scientists we met on this road trip. Sarah Robertson-Lentz is our editor, and she made all the episode art. Eric Kuhn engineered and mixed most of these original episodes. Lindsay Patterson wrote the original episodes. Our interns Elliot Hijaj and Grace Ingram wrote the interludes and trivia questions for this road trip special, and Elliot Hijaj did all the sound effects and edited the interludes. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all of the music. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that episode, and now that it's over, we've got some birthday shoutouts to give to our supporters on Patreon. Cleo Chan Testa, keep learning and shining, and happy birthday on August 21st. Emma K, mom and dad are always so proud of you, and happy birthday on August 21st as well. And another August 21st birthday, happy birthday to Julian Butel. Caroline Cardenas, Jenny and dad love you more than most, and happy birthday on August 23rd. Jack, mommy, daddy, and little brother Miles all love their super reader. Happy 7th birthday on August 26th. Isabel, your family and friends love you. Keep exploring the world and leading with generosity and kindness. And happy birthday on August 26th. Benji, keep being you and happy birthday on August 28th. Happy August 28th birthday to Genevieve Folger. Keep enjoying Tumble, Genevieve. Kale, Mom, Dad, Hayden, and Bob love you. And happy birthday on August 29th. Happy August 30th birthday to Oren Saray. Mom, Dad, and Robin love you so much, Oren. Owen, happy birthday on August 30th. Haley, happy birthday on August 31st. Keep inventing and discovering with love from Mom, Dad, and Auntie Kate. And shout out to Miss Barry from Xander DeVries on his birthday on August 31st. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.